0: It's always great to see you guys. I know I say that every week. I really mean it. (laughs) So tonight, um, I'm going to share a little bit about, briefly, me, and then um, we're going to look at the scriptures and tackle a pretty challenging topic. Uh, We're going to talk about healing and why we don't see it, why it doesn't happen, what are the forces against healing. And before I kind of jump into that, and also a couple of small things about partial healings and things like that that I was really skeptical about. But I had a real big fear of, of healing. Um, even before this topic, and I, I stand before you not having this topic figured out personally. And I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago that I, I, I don't hold my life accountable to what I preach. I'm preaching the word, but I'm being convicted of my own words and the scriptures as along with you. And I was never really around the topic of healing uh, when I was younger, my faith it was always like kind of like a history lesson. I wasn't really sure if it was possible. I had never really seen it. And as an adult, in a mature stage of my faith, I wanted to stay away from healing. And there's one reason why is that I was afraid to participate in any prayers for healing because what if it didn't work? What if I prayed for healing and that person didn't get healed? Was there a tie, a connection between people getting healed and the legitimacy of my faith? What if they weren't healed? Does that mean that God is not real? Does that mean that God is not caring? Does that mean my my faith is not real? And so I avoided healing because I did not want to shipwreck my faith. I did not want to put my faith in danger. If I prayed for someone for healing, they didn't get healed. And I believe that many people are in the same boat. They're afraid about healing. They're afraid to pray for healing because they're really deep down afraid that God might not be real. He might not be that powerful in their life. Your faith might not be working. And so I'm just going to say that that's where I was. And so it was either easier for me to have faith apart from healing. The best way for me not to have my faith negatively impacted by healing was to never participate in healing at all. For me, that was the easiest thing. And that way I wouldn't have to answer all the tough questions such as, why wasn't this person healed? Was I not powerful enough? Was God not powerful enough? Why didn't God want to heal this person? What about the sovereignty of God? What about all the things in the Bible that says about that? And so I was afraid of the scriptures too. I kind of would like pass by those areas. Let's get to something like about alcoholism or temptation or sin. Like that's very concrete for me, but, but healings really broke out of the box for me and it really challenged me. And I wanted to search and discover why we don't see healings today. I wanna see what are the factors that are at play in what affect it. And again, as I say before, don't take my word for it, please. I'm here to open the scriptures with you. I'm here to look at what I believe the patterns are in the Bible. You're not gonna hear a formula from me. Don't mistake anything you hear as a formula. These are patterns I'm starting to see and, um, and what, it, what it's done for me is it's allowed me in this pursuit, and I hope for you guys, is to, is to realize that healing the topic is very complex. And we, and we can be really dumb about a very complex issue, or we can be very intelligent and well-informed about a complex issue. I would like to be well-informed about a complex issue. And what I've learned in this process is that I, I went from, um, I'd rather been in a position to where I could be a part-time healer instead of a full-time skeptic. And until probably this point, I've been a full-time skeptic. And I'd rather align my faith and my knowledge and not be afraid of the scriptures, not be afraid of what God says in the stories around me, and, and not be afraid of that and say, okay, I can do my part. I can participate in the framework that God has, but it doesn't need to shipwreck my faith and it doesn't need to alter what I believe and I'd rather pray 900,000 prayers that don't work in order to have the one that does, because I'd rather be a part-time healer than a full-time skeptic. Are you with me? Yes. So here's what I want to answer tonight. I never believed in partial healings. I was like, a partial healing is a healing that didn't work, you know? I'm not going to believe that. I didn't believe in progress healings. Like, oh, it'll be healer. overnight. I thought, like, boom, you know, it should be right then or nothing. Um, and are there instances in the Bible where healing didn't happen, couldn't happen? Um, and so that's what we're gonna talk about tonight. I'm gonna to just start the topic of the forces against healing. Um, I don't know how long this will go. I hope to share three tonight and then some more next week. But let's first tackle the, the two easy questions. We're, are there such things as partial healings? Are there such things as healing in stages? What about delayed healings, progress pain, uh, healings, healings in installments, how about that? Let's look at a couple of scriptures. Mark chapter 8, verse 22, and they came to, we're going to just pretend that means Bethsaida. I'll We'll just go with that word. And they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him, taking the blind man by the hand. He brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, everyone say, again. He laid his hands on his eyes and he looked intently and he was restored and he began to see everything clearly. What we can learn from here is it took Jesus two times. If you don't believe that there are progress installments of healing right here, Jesus himself, it took him two times, two times, two times to heal him. And so as we begin to think about healing, if the immediate like lightning comes down, zaps the person. They jump out of the whatever you know ailment they have. If that doesn't happen, that's okay because we actually now have some scripture frameworks to say, "Wow, there actually was a progression." And for me, just that simple truth alone was like, "Oh man, you know I can actually take heart knowing that there is a process that can be there." But what about delayed healing? What about things that require um, a little more time? John chapter nine, verse one through seven. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered and said, it was neither this man sinned nor his parents. If you were here last week, we've redeemed the worst scripture in the Bible about does God make people sick? Does God give people ailments in order to heal them? And this passage right here is mistranslated. I'm convinced without a doubt. If you missed that, just go check out last week, we got really intelligent about this verse. But I'm gonna now read it how it should have been translated, okay? "'Neither that this man's sin nor his parents,' In order that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seen. Here's a story of a man who's healed in a delayed stage. He came blind and Jesus spit in the mud, put it in his eyes. You could argue that his condition got worse. You're like, I'm blind and now I need a bath. Thank you for that. But it's interesting that he went. There was participation needed. There's only two passages of healings where they're actually required an act of faith of somebody else after Jesus decreed you will be made well, that they're actually required and act on, them, on the other person. And so the healing didn't happen immediately. It happened when the obedience came. Fascinating. Here's the other passage for that. Luke chapter 17, 12 through 14. As he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. As they were going, they were cleansed. And as we read the rest of that story, which we don't have here tonight, we know that one of them got healed and turned back. Well, actually, 10 of them all got healed, but one of them made the journey back. What that means is that it wasn't that they turned, they got healed. No, they went. We don't know how long they went, but long enough for them to be out of the picture and one person coming back and giving glory to Jesus. So we we can trust in those two topics of progress healings or partial healings or things that are in the works are there as well as the ones that are delayed, the ones that that we believe God today that there is healing, we look forward to Jesus to, to the fruition. And we can actually take biblical strength on knowing that that is in the realm. We don't need to gauge failure or success upon what happens now, which for me was always a big challenge. Amen? You guys with that? So now the topic that we all wanna know, what are the forces that work against healing? What are the factors that are at play when we pray and when we desire and we seek healing. And I'm going to give you a lot of scripture. And we're going to go through a lot because what I want to do is I don't want you to feel like a cherry picked. Anybody can cherry pick a passage and create a wacky theology. That's That's a good word. Anybody can cherry pick a random verse and make a crazy theology. And so I'm going to share with you tonight, it's going to be a lot, but I'm giving you a lot because I want you to feel confident in the word. It's important that as we hold on to things, we actually can hold on to them with not just a shred of kind of hopeful evidence, but we actually say, wow, Jesus, you were like really made this reinforced for me. And um, so I want us to be confident in the scriptures and without a doubt on these topics. And again, these aren't formulas, these are patterns, and these are observations I want to share with you. Also, anybody who wants these notes, I will give them to you. So... Don't wig out if you're like trying to scribble things down because you won't be able to catch up. It's important that your heart and your mind listens and not your pen and paper. I can get you what's on the, the paper, but your hearts need to hear what we're gonna talk about. So what are they? These are just my own thoughts. The first is the region, the city, and the place you're in. The second is the people you're with. And the third is the condition of your heart. That's all I hope to give you tonight. Notice that littleness and unbelief, all those things. We'll get to that later. I'm going to start with these three, which, which you probably haven't heard. First, the most fascinating one for me to find out is the region, city, village, or place that you're in. If you remember back when we talked about the demonic strongholds, Mark chapter, nine, or Mark chapter 5, verse 9, that we found that the enemy actually gave us a clue. The enemy gave a clue about power. It's very specific. I have it here for you again. It says, then Jesus asked him. This is the man who is demon-possessed by like 7,000 demons. Like he was demonized, right? He had lots of company. And <laughs> the demon, the head, like the, the hierarchy, right? The, head, the demon that was coming forth and speaking said this. After saying, my name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And then the demon, it says, he begged Jesus again and again. The demon begged Jesus, again, I mean, really? Like, please? I mean, like, emphatically. This, you, you can't get more serious than this. To what? To not leave the man? No. Do not send them out of the area. The area. Weird. And then and that just opened up the thought, like, wow, demonic strongholds are geographic in nature. Now, let's look at how... Geography plays a role in what Jesus did. Matthew ten five through eight. These 12, Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you received, freely give. Jesus instructed them specifically not to go into any city of the Samaritans. But wait, right? When we were like looking at healings, didn't Jesus heal them all? We looked at all the scripture. Is it God's will to heal? Yes, he healed them all. And everywhere they went, they were healed. Yes, but they didn't go everywhere. Everywhere they went, they healed and they all were healed, but they didn't go everywhere. Luke chapter 10, verse eight, whatever city, everyone say city. city. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Again, Jesus made specific instruction about entering cities and then talked about healing. The atmosphere for the kingdom to be at work, this is interesting, the atmosphere for the kingdom to be at work was judged at the city level, not the individual level. Matthew 10, verse 14 and 15, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, everyone say city, Shake off the dust of your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Again, there's a city-level judgment on the power and the authority of the kingdom. Matthew 19, verse one and two, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large clouds followed large crowds, followed him, and he healed them there. Everyone say there. There. Remember Jesus instructed to not go into certain cities? He says he left Galilee. What is it specific about Galilee? There's a lot of Gentiles in the region of Galilee. He says he took them out of Galilee across the Jordan, and then he healed them there. Jesus is like, I'm going to heal you, but first we can take a little road trip. Let's go that way. (laughs) He departed from Galilee with a large crowd, and when he crossed the Jordan, he chose to heal them in a different place in which he found them. Mark chapter eight, verse twenty-two, and they came to Bethsaida. We'll just go with that word again. And they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him. Are you guys reading this? Out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, We already read this again. I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to say everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. In order to heal this man, do you see what he did before? He took him out of the village. And healed them again. I'm going to heal you. Hold that thought. Let's walk this way. All right, we there? All right, boom, you're healed. I mean, and then not only are you healed, but don't go back there. That's such a strange thing. Don't go back there. I'm going to heal you over there, but don't go back there. Matthew 12, verse 9 through 15. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. Everyone say synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the others. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all. Notice again, we have Jesus in a climate before the Pharisees. He does one healing, but we know that he has a crowd with him. He departs from there, they follow him, and it says, then he healed them all. Hmm. It's fascinating if you really think about it, that Jesus did one miracle in the synagogue, but in order to bring healing to the rest of the crowd, he had to take them out of the church. In order for Jesus to heal the people, he's like, I'm in the church, this place is not the right place to do healing, let's go that way. And we see the rebuke, from Jesus against cities. Jesus rebuked cities, Matthew eleven, twenty through twenty-four. Then he began to denounce the cities in which look at this, most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for it, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day... Nevertheless, I say to you that it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Again, the rebuke is at the city level. Isn't this fascinating? And the rebuke there was the cities that Jesus permitted people to go and go heal. So Jesus says, don't go in the cities, go into these some. And then after that, he rebuked the cities because it didn't have the effect. So what can we learn from this? I think one of the first things is, um, and I had a, a great buddy, a college buddy, uh, who's, who uh, sent me some great notes. He's like, and he gave me such a, uh, an awesome little snippet I'm gonna share with you. God goes where he's welcome. God goes where he's welcome. The power of God will follow where it's welcome. Jesus will heal where he is welcome. So that's force number one. Are you guys good with that? Pretty crazy, right? Number two, the people you are with. Get ready to be offended. (laughs) Don't send me emails, (laughs) unless they're very nice. Force number two against the power and authority of healing the supernatural, the people you are with, or maybe you. (laughs) We'll see. The question is, do the people you surround you with matter? Do the people in attendance matter for healing? Was there a difference between when this person's here that something happens or this person and something happens? And it's easy to say, um, um, oh yeah, well this person and that and uh, well the same power of God that is in me is in them and so therefore it actually isn't true. Let's find out about this, right? Mark chapter five, verse 22 and three and also verses 35 and 43. What I've done is I've taken out the middle because the middle um, broke up the thought. So that's why I have these two together. I'm gonna accompany them. All right, Mark chapter five. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. Look at this. And he, this is Jesus, allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came into the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died but is asleep they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, putting them all out, he took along the child's father, mother, and his own companions. Remember who his own companions were? Peter, James, and John? Mm -hmm. And entered the room where the child was, taking the child by the hand, he said to to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up immediately the girl got up and began to walk for she was 12 years old and immediately they were completely astounded and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and he said that something should be given to her to eat. Could it be that sometimes the miraculous is linked to specific individuals? The lie I believe is like the same power of God is in them as in me. That actually isn't true. I have the same spirit but my access to what that spirit can do is not equal upon all people. It's based upon what we'll learn in the next couple, maybe maybe one or two weeks, about how my own decisions, my own belief, and what I choose to do with the spirit in me will determine what comes out of the power of the spirit. The spirit is in the same person everywhere, are you with me? But how we use it, what we believe about it will determine what effects it has. So could it be that sometimes the miraculous is linked to some, other, some people and not others? Remember, Peter, James, and John, right? Mark chapter nine, verse two and four. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up. How many disciples were there? Twelve. How many people did he take with them? And he offended nine others, right? <laughs> Actually, in uh, Luke chapter 10, it says that Jesus appointed 70. So he could have just then offended 67 people right there. But he took three with them, look at this, and brought them up on a high mountain, what does it say, by themselves. Jesus, just like, all who come, but for us to see the supernatural, um, I have a secondary application for that, that you'll have to pass. And Jesus was transfigured before him and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no laundry on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Clearly, the issue is not believers and non-believers. Jesus was selective of his own disciples. Sometimes people wanna make an issue about that, well, that person wasn't saved. That person, you know, wasn't, it actually didn't matter. Even within Jesus' own followers, there were different levels that people were capable of bringing the supernatural. Mm-hmm. For so long, I, 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 I don't know where it came from, probably um, unrighteous comparison or whatever it is, I look to certain people that have certain authority and instead of recognizing, wow, God is doing rad things in there, can you teach me what you are doing? be like, well, I, you know, I'd be the skeptic, right? But now the scripture is showing us that it doesn't, just because I have the same spirit doesn't put us on equal effects of the spirit. And just because you go to church and believe in God does not mean that you bring the kingdom to heal. Just because you are here does not make you an asset for healing. You might be a counterforce, You might love Jesus. You might believe God. You might believe all those things. And you might be in church and you might be a stumbling block for healing. Don't believe me? Here is a passage that few people, they get the wrong point of the story. When we look at what happened after, fascinating. Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple. Everyone say temple, and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves and he said to them it is written my house shall be called a house of prayer but you are making it a robber's den and the story typically ends there and we said, yeah, Jesus went and cleaned house. He's against corruption. You know, like, and we, we, we use that as the model thing. Well, Jesus, you know, got all pissed off. And so therefore, I can too, you know? And we, we, we get that story there. And so what we miss is why did Jesus do that? Yes, my house will not be a den of robber. Yeah, I, I get that. But look, there's a reason why he did that. Not simply because of corruption not simply because the people were changing money. There's a reason. Look what happens right after he, remember, drove them all out of the what? The temple? Drove all those people out of the temple. And then look what happens next. And the blind and the lame came to him, where? In the temple. temple. And he healed them. Jesus drove out people from the temple, then welcomed certain people in to heal into the temple to heal them. People think Jesus was having a rage or a corrupt, or just, you know, going wild on the corruption of the church, and that is true. But what Jesus did is he, he cleaned house of the house of God in order to do the works of God. The real story there is that God, in order to do the works of God, had to clean out the corruption that was in the name of God first. Jesus wanted to do the work of God, but he had to get rid of all the rubbish inside first. We can learn that there were people inside the church that were prohibiting the works of God. So many times we see the Pharisees. Remember, Jesus was in front of the Pharisees, took the others out. There's a lot of religious leaders that should have been like on board of the whole healing gig, the power of God gig, you know, and he removed them and then healed them there. Well, what about, you know, did the apostles do this? Were the apostles in the early New Testament church in Acts, did they do things like this where they were selective? Yes, Acts chapter 9, verse 36. Now, do you think I'm ever going to say no? No, of course, yes. I'm going to lead you because I believe this. Acts chapter 9, verse 36 and 42. Now, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated in Greek called Dorcas. Bummer name. If you're pregnant looking for a name, you can scratch that one off the list, probably. This woman. Who is this? A disciple. Wait a minute. A disciple can't be a woman? We'll get to that later. Just I'm not saying I'm just saying. A disciple named Tabitha, this woman, so that will be a different topic sometime later was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda or Lydda was near Jopa, the disciples having heard that Peter was there, Peter, remember they, it was very specific. There's a lot of apostles and disciples at this time. There's a lot of them. They heard that Peter was there sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and the garnets that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them out. Peter sent them all out, and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise, and she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa that many believed in the Lord. It's crazy stuff. It's not one passage. It's not two passages. I'm giving you like a ton of them. Who we are matters. Who we spend time with matters. Who we bring into the expectation of the move of God matters. So what can we learn from this? Is that the text does not take specific, in these issues, um, these texts, it does not make specific mention issues of why those people were. The, The past two, it was they were all weeping and mourning I, I can get into that later, but I wonder between those two that it's hard to declare healing while you're weeping and mourning. <laughs> but that's really the only detail in all the stories about people that distinguished it. And so we'll talk about some other individual things, but it's, um, it's important to know that Jesus was intentional about people and who was with them when he healed. Are you guys good with that one? Yeah. Force number three a force that comes against healing, against the supernatural, against the move of God is the condition of your heart. The condition of your heart. Remember, why did Jesus rebuke cities? Matthew 11, we have it again. Verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. It's important to note that this was specific in which cities he wanted to heal, and then he healed them, and then he renounces the cities in in which most of the miracles were done. The cities in which most of his miracles were done, in the city that most of his miracles were done, did not have the intended effect. Can you thwart the purposes of God? No. Yes. Right here, we're saying we're seeing Jesus kind of regretting that he brought the healing because it didn't have the intended effect. They were unaffected by what Jesus did for them. The cities, let me say it again, they were unaffected by what Jesus did for them. If Jesus is renouncing places where most of his miracles are done, what makes us think that he will continue to do miracles in places where he's uninvited and unwanted? What makes us think that Jesus will continue to do miracles in the supernatural where it has no effect, where it has no impact? Why would Jesus continue to heal if it's not being effective? There's something about being affected by what just happened that leads to more. Let me say that again. One of the most things that you can do when you see, experience, or a part of a move of God is allow yourself to be impacted. Allow yourself to be affected and changed. The worst thing that you can do in the presence of the supernatural, in the presence of healing, in the presence of God is to remain unaffected. As God is distributing his works, as God is distributing the supernatural and is distributing his demonstrating power, I believe God is allocating it to the, I believe God is allocating that to the places that will be the most impacted. Let me say that again, because I didn't say that exactly right. As God is distributing his works, his power, I believe that he is allocating it to the places and to the people that will be impacted most by it. God, we know that God does not need to show off. Love is not self-seeking. God is not self-seeking. God's not just gonna like throw a fireball on the freeway just to say and like make it spell Jesus just because he wants, you know, like, hey, I can do that, you know? (laughs) Jesus is not in the business of like showing, hey, I can do that. He built the heavens. He put the breath in your nostrils. He doesn't need to show off for anybody who's not gonna respond. So we don't need to expect God to just simply flex his muscles and say, yeah, because he's like every, just look around. I'm flexing it all the time. But God is designed to distribute miracles and healing according to restoring people into the kingdom of heaven. God's purpose in healings and miracles and supernatural is to restore people into the kingdom. Jesus, remember we talked about in our first message on this, had a purpose for healing, and it is to be an instrument that brings you to him and others to him. Jesus heals so that more people spend eternity with him. He's so set on having eternity with you. That is his main goal. And Jesus is not satisfied if he heals your body but doesn't win your heart. Jesus is not satisfied if he heals your body but doesn't win your heart. Jesus has a purpose in healing. And it's not to simply improve your golf game. It's not simply so you can keep running again. It's not simply so you can bend over. Like his purpose is not just simply so that you would live a life that's slightly more flexible. You know, like I, I can't touch my toes. I'm not asking God to make me more flexible because that won't do anything for me. You know, but God is designing the supernatural to be an instrument in which can bring people in the kingdom, be a demonstration for his love of his children and create a high population in the, in the heavens. Amen. And worse, a miracle without repentance creates a hardened heart. A miracle without repentance creates a hardened heart. If you don't respond to God, even the face of a miracle, what will you respond to? I think Jesus is saying to those cities, I don't have anything else for you. <laughs> I gave it my best shot. And still, you had the hardened heart. So the question might be where can I find the most miracles? in the places where people will respond most. It's easy to look at places like Bethel. you know, it can happen here. Well, maybe it can't actually. Maybe it can't. Because God is doing something in a place that welcomes that and is having fruit and an impact by that. God's not gonna come and like, please, please, please be affected. You know, like he's not gonna beg you to be affected by it. Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible for it to come here, but I can tell you that two cities aren't equal now. Two bodies and congregations are not equal now. I don't believe the scripture shows it to us. But God is gonna go where he's welcome. His power is gonna follow people who respond. If we wanna see miracles here, we should actually practice being affected by just the simple presence. So it begs the question, could it be that we don't see miracles in our life because we have become unresponsive and unaffected to the power of God we already had? Maybe God's saying, like, if that's what you're doing with what I'm giving you already, what benefit is there going to be to giving you more? I don't think God gets exhausted by distributing power. But I think that he wonders, like, I could make the walls become faces and say, Jesus is Lord. And you would still be like, maybe that was just a hologram. I think think Jesus is like, kind of like, I, I would do those things, but he knows our hearts. So the question is, could it be that God does not feel welcome to do the miracles before us because the last time he did, it fell flat? Could it be that God does not feel welcome to do miracles in your life because the last time he did, it fell flat? And maybe nobody's ever opened the conversation of, wow, yeah, I was a part of something really crazy and it really didn't have any effect. It's not, there's no expiration date on the works of God. You can choose tonight to be impacted and affected by what you saw five years ago. It's not too late. Maybe you need to have the realization that, wow, I was a part of some crazy things and I sat there and I checked my phone. I checked there and I said, well, that ain't real. He's faking it. Maybe you're right now saying, I saw crazy things, and in response, and instead of responding with being affected, I hardened my heart with skepticism. And maybe that's the door that's closed in your life from seeing more power. And God's like, I gave you the real deal. And you said it's not for you. You said it's not legit. I'm going to start to kind of end... (laughs) Turn the direction that way. Um, I want to make mention of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are like kind of the, if Jesus is the good guy, you know, the Pharisees, get on Jesus, yeah, you said, the, you know, like, we all, yeah, you know, all about, yeah, he really put them in their place, you know, all of us, like, we look at them. But here's what's fascinating about the Pharisees is that we need to actually have a little more compassion on them. Here's why, Luke chapter 7, verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers, rejected God's purposes for themselves. God actually said, I did not create you to smite you. I did not create you to make an example of you. My purpose for you was that you would be a pillar of the kingdom. My purpose for you is that you would have a soft heart and the Pharisees rejected it. God's explicit purpose for them was that they would be part of God's kingdom coming to earth and they rejected it. Again in Mark chapter 5 or Mark chapter 3 verse 5 Jesus says after looking around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart Jesus was heartbroken over the condition of the Pharisees You need to know that God's purpose for the Pharisees was not what happened It's not how the story was supposed to go and Jesus here he's grieving over their hearts He desired that they know him and receive him that was his purpose Now, let me pause that thought right there, okay? Think back to the Old Testament. People crossing bodies of water, you know, doing crazy things. Um, Awesome works of God in the Old Testament almost always accompanied one task. Just like, boom, you know, there goes the Red Sea, or boom, there goes the Jordan River. Now, after they're out, before you keep going, I'm going to ask you to do one thing. You know what it was? Build a tower of rocks, Build a monument, build something to remember this. Why? Because you will forget. You will, ah, what Jordan River? That was so yesterday. What has God done for me lately? No, He's saying do something so that you will not forget. Please remember because your heart will become hard and you will forget what I did before you. Please don't become numb to the power of God, but remember it and be affected by it. And every single time you forget it, go back to look at it and remember it. Let it change the way you live and react. There's a story of the Old Testament. Why was Jesus grieved at the Pharisees? Jesus was particularly grieved at the Pharisees because most of them had the scriptures memorized if anybody could recite every miraculous work of God, it was the Pharisees. They had it all. They knew it all. I mean, they would wear it on boxes on their forehead. I mean, they were really serious about it. But to those who could recite all that God in the past refused to live today as if God could do it now. The Pharisees grieved Jesus' heart because they knew the power of God and didn't believe it when it stood before them. God parted the, this is the Pharisees, God parted the Red Sea, but it doesn't happen now, said the Pharisees. Jesus healed people back in the day, but it doesn't happen now, says today's Christian. If you are one that says healing happened really back in the days of Jesus, you sound more like a Pharisee than you do a modern day Christian that's supposed to believe that today Jesus lives today. If you're the type that that's not for today, you sound exactly like the Pharisees who said, that can't happen. That happened back then. And Jesus' heart is grieving. Not to beat up on them too much is, did this ever happen to the disciples where they experienced a miracle and then fell victim to a hardened heart and to unbelief? Did they ever forget the greatness of Jesus and his capabilities? Mark chapter 6, verse 48. This is Jesus, seeing them, the disciples, straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night. And he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. I don't know why he was intending to pass by them and not join them, but that's an interesting passage. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately Jesus spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished for they had not gained, listen, they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Right there. Immediately after the miracle of, wham, fish and bread for thousands. They had to let that incident lapse in their memory and not live according to what they believed and saw. I think Jesus gives a little bit of slack to the disciples because in Acts chapter 4, when Peter is standing before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin kind of does like a backhanded compliment to him, knowing that the men were uneducated, but had been with Jesus. And so I don't think they really knew any better. So we see that a hardened heart will make a stumbling block to more supernatural. So what are some of the ways that our heart can become hardened? And we'll tackle that next week.
1: I was thinking while Eric was talking about, there's actually a theme to the service tonight. And somebody texted me and said, the testimony validated blessing the children. Because when the kids come up, they're innocent. You know, they're having fun. Like when we're worshiping, they're... I know it might be distracting to some of you, but I think that's how God sees it. You know, Scarlett was up here, like, twirling in circles. She was reaching for the mic. She was, you know. And then Amanda gets up and gives a testimony, and it takes it out of, it it took relationships to a whole different level. Because what she was talking about is innocence. Because if you start your relationship, you build your foundation on innocence. And if you're here tonight, and you didn't start your dating relationship that way, or if you're in one, you can actually go back and totally make it something different. We have testimonies here. Mike and Ashley did that with their relationship. And, it's, and they've had a powerful impact even in our ministry. Angela and Eugene did that in their relationship. So there, you can powerfully become innocent as a child. And when Eric was uh, speaking, I was like, "God, I have seen some amazing miracles." It just made me want to get on my face before him and ask myself, "Have I? How have I been impacted?" Show me where my heart is hard. And that's why you guys hear us, you know, we ask you not to let just anybody pray for you for this reason. Because we ask our leadership to sign a written commitment that says if you have aught with anyone, you'll either handle it within a week, or if you don't want to, we respect your right not to, but we're asking you to step off the leadership team until you can handle it. Because division and a body is really powerful and works against. So I thought it was really powerful when Eric was uh, preaching tonight. I remember when he used to have sermons that made no one unhappy. But we weren't growing then, and we didn't experience the power of the Lord. So if tonight you... uh, I got something to think about, something to take home, spend time with the Lord, like I did. You know, I was even thinking about, sometimes when we pray for people, I'm very particular about that. And there have been times where I've actually gone to people. I did this once in Virginia, and I took someone's hand off of, I was praying, and this woman came down and put her hand on the person I was praying for, and I took her hand off and put it in her lap, Because when we stand up here, we have a scriptural responsibility to do the very best. And I have a responsibility when I stand here to take care of my own stuff. So we value your lives tonight. We love you. If our worship team will come up, we love to minister, uh, to bless you. And um, I just encourage you, seek the Lord on what Eric shared this week. Develop the heart of a child. That's why Jesus said, you know, let little kids come, because that's what the kingdom of heaven is made of. I'm determined to grow down. I'm determined to every wall that stands between me and God and me and people. And you know, if you have walls between you and people, you have walls between you and God. Because you don't do relationships any differently this way than you do them this way. Whatever your problems are with people, you keep finding yourself in the same place. You're at that place with God. You just can't see his face. So you don't look at his eyes sometimes. So we just want to bless you if you'll stand with us, if our uh, prayer team will come forward.